Father, we thank you so much for tonight. We thank you for the opportunity to be here. I pray, Father, that you would do a miraculous work in each and every life. I pray, Father, as we dig into the subject of grace tonight, I pray that we again, if we are in Christ, would be amazed by this awesome grace that you've given us. And for anyone in the room that has not experienced this grace in a salvific way, because everyone in the room, Father, has experienced your grace, I pray that tonight would be their night of salvation. Father, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you for everything you will do here tonight. We pray us in Jesus' holy and mighty name. Amen. Now, I just want to tell you guys, and you may be seated, by the way. You don't have to stand the whole sermon. I just want to tell you guys up front, we are going to be turning to a lot of Scripture. And so if you would rather just listen as opposed to flipping all through the Word of God, that's absolutely fine. If you want to flip through with me, that's great as well. But I encourage you to make sure that you go back and check all of the texts that we will be referring to here tonight if you choose not to turn so that you yourself with your eyes can see the Word of God. And so with that said, I actually want us to take one verse back from where we began. And I want to remind us of verse 21 of chapter 10, where it says this. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So what Paul just did in the verses previous was lay out an argument of how his people, the Israelites, the Jews, have been disobedient and contrary to the goodness and the grace of God. And Paul goes really far to make sure that all of the readers understand how wicked and awful it is to see the grace of God being extended to someone and for them to reject it. And as we consider Israel, and as probably the readers did as well, they were like, well, if Israel is this bad, what do we do with Israel? Have they just been rejected by God? Is there any hope at all for the Jewish people? Because God was so gracious and good and kind to them as a nation. Is there any opportunity for them to repent in light of the rejection In light of what they have done towards the grace of God? In light of him holding out his arms continually and them not responding to this act of grace? Well, Paul knew they would be thinking that, and he wanted to give them an answer to that question. And that's where we start in verse 1. And it says this, I ask them then, has God rejected his people? Paul's answer, by no means. And then he gives his first argument. He says, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Let's just simplify this for everybody in the room. This is what Paul just said. I'm as Jewish as it gets. And God saved me. And something else that Paul could present here that's also very helpful in this argument is who he was pre-conversion. And that was a blasphemer a persecutor of the church. 
If we were to rank sins and say, okay, what is kind of the worst thing a person can do? Probably killing Christians ranks up there pretty high. And so Paul is using himself as an example that when the world looks at what could be done towards the church that would be most offensive to the church, killing the church, and yet God offered grace to a man who was doing that very thing. Again, considering the nation of Israel, we read the Old Testament, God's grace toward them over and over and over again, rescuing them, whether it be from Egypt, whether it be from other captivities, whether it ultimately be from their sin, God over and over and over again offers them grace. And Paul wants his audience to understand two very important things. No matter how wicked you've been, and no matter how many times you've heard the gospel, it doesn't make you less or more deserving of God's grace. Whether you view yourself as a nasty, wicked sinner that has like the testimony of all testimonies. I don't know if you've ever been to a testimony service where somebody stands up and then the next person stands up and tries to outdo the other person about how wicked they were. And then about 10 people in, they're just like, I don't know if we could get any more wicked than this guy. Right? We've all been there. We've heard these kind of things. And unfortunately, what we so often think is that God rescuing someone who is a known sinner... The worst of the worst is a greater miracle than God saving a six-year-old. And the answer is, it isn't. Because God's gift to us is not a gift we work for. It is a gift of grace. Paul goes on to say this. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now, if you keep this marked here, I would encourage you to turn over with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Now, there's a lot of verses that I could read here in this text, but for the sake of time and everything we have to take care of tonight, I'm not going to. But I'm going to read enough that we get the point. So in Deuteronomy chapter 7, starting in verse 6, it says this. It says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth can you imagine being told this out of all of the peoples on the face of the earth god has chose us i wonder why maybe it's because of how awesome we are nope that's not what the answer is that the lord gives it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the lord set his love on you and chose you for you are actually the fewest of all peoples But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. What's important about this? First and foremost, he did not pick Israel because of anything redeeming in them. Whether it be from a worldly perspective or from a personal perspective, that is not why God chose them as his people. And I want to encourage you in something. That's exactly the same thing for you. God did not choose to save you because of something redeeming about you. He didn't look and say, I need them on my team. 
Every act of salvation is because of God being faithful to the promise that He made that He would save. Not because we earned it, not because we deserve it, but because of a great love that not one person on the planet deserves from a holy and great and good God that, by the way, just like Paul and just like Israel, make an absolute career out of sinning against this good and gracious and loving and holy God. And so when Paul talks about Israel being foreknown by God, when he talks about the position they have, he wants the readers to understand the only reason they had that position is because of the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, the loving kindness of God and His faithfulness to His promises. And then he goes on to say this, Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Now listen to his appeal to God. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. This is what Elijah's thinking. God, I know you made a covenant promise that someday you were going to redeem us through the Messiah. And I'm it. So if I die, what are you going to do? Because God, it looks really bleak right now that this whole salvation thing is going to come to pass. Or maybe another way to think about it, that people are even going to be saved. I feel like today, some of us are starting to have an attitude like that as we look around in our culture. We see wickedness running rampant. And what's the natural instinct for us? To hide and wait. To hide and wait. Possibly for things to get better, bad news. They're not going to. We have been given a call to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, by the way, to a disobedient and contrary people, and people are no more or less disobedient or contrary than they've ever been. Now, wickedness manifests itself in a multitude of ways, and obviously some of that wickedness is far more bothersome than others to us. But for us to believe that there are people that are more lost than someone else would be a disservice to understanding the grace of God. And as Elijah looked around, his perspective was, this was hopeless because he was looking at people. Our perspective changes when we look to our God. Because when our hope is in God and Him being faithful for His glory and for His namesake, it transforms everything. There are people in this room that you would have thought that would have never came to know Jesus Christ and they were saved. And there are people in this room and people in our lives that we look at and say, that's a done deal. They're a good person. They do the right things. They're moral. They're ethical. Of course they're going to be saved. And to our surprise, they reject the gospel being presented to them. Why is that? Because every single person on the planet outside of Christ is disobedient and contrary. And Paul also doesn't want us to forget that though God is faithful and God is good, there also is consequences to our actions. What we do is not meaningless, and here in a moment we will dig into that. But here is what God says to Elijah. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. 
7,000 men. Elijah thinks he's alone. God's like, nope, there's 7,000 that are mine. What do we see early on in the book of Acts? We see the nation of Israel reject their Messiah. Peter preaches a message. Thousands of people come to faith. Chapters later, he preaches again. Thousands of people come to faith. Why? Because God is a good and gracious and patient and loving God, not based on our behaviors, but based on Him and His will alone for men and women's lives. And praise God that it is His will to save. And we should be incredibly excited about that. Just like Elijah's spirit should have went through the roof knowing this, and how ours should as well, that God is still in the saving business today even when we look around and may be given to despair. He goes on to say this, So too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. What is he saying here? There are Jewish people that are going to be saved, despite the fact that Israel as a nation has rejected their Messiah. And then he says this, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Which leads us into now where I want to start getting out of this some very deep and important things for us to understand about the totality of this chapter as we continue to dig through it over the next few weeks. The first thing is this, and you'll see it on your notes. God ultimately fulfills His Word his promises and covenants, not because of our faithfulness, but because of his. And he does this for his glory. If you would flip over with me to Romans chapter 3, I find some very encouraging words starting in verse 1 of Romans chapter 3. And it says this, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Answer, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, or the word of God. What if some were unfaithful, though? What happens? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Answer, by no means. Let God be true. Though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. If you would turn with me to Numbers chapter 23 and verse 19, it tells us these very important words. And again, if you are a memorizer of Scripture, as I say all the time, you should be. This is very important because this is where so many of our battles are waged in the Christian life. This is what it says in Numbers 23 and in verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said it, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken it, and will he not fulfill it? We've been working through the book of Romans. Promise after promise after promise after promise. And every single day, when you think about God wanting to save, 
when you think about the severity of not responding to the grace of God, we want to question whether that's actually true. When we think about that he's never going to leave us nor forsake us, where is where we automatically go to in our mind? Our behavior, our faithfulness. How Christian have I been today? How Christian have I been this week? How Christian have I been this month? Answer, not good enough to save yourself. And you should be thankful for that, by the way. Because his saving of you had nothing to do with you before and has nothing to do with you now. Now let's pause. Because Romans 6 is very important here. So if you'd flip over there with me. In light of what I just said, starting in verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Or, Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. But then verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It's encouraging that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. But if you are in Christ Jesus... There's no doubt that you're in Christ Jesus. And not because you're perfect, but because you've been transformed. See, God wanted the nation of Israel to be a come and see kind of people. You might be saying, well, pastor, what do you mean by that? He wanted them as a nation to show the blessings of God when you walk in obedience to him as a nation. As an example to the other nations around them, that Yahweh was the one true God. And most of the time, they failed miserably at doing that. Did that lead to Jews not being saved? Absolutely not. Did that lead to Gentiles, like, for example, in the book of Jonah, not being saved? Absolutely not. Because God was not dependent on Israel doing what he asked them to do to accomplish his purposes. Any more than he needed them to perform in a certain way for anyone to be saved. Whether it was Elijah or anyone else. The Israelites being rescued from Egypt was not dependent on Moses. But God used Moses. But what is amazing about our God is that He uses resources, but I want to encourage you in something. He can create resources out of nothing. Which is why He is never dependent on resources, but hear me out on this. It is glorious to be used by God. It is glorious to be His hands and feet. As we read last week in Romans chapter 10, to have beautiful feet nonetheless. Going into the world and preaching the gospel, both to Jew and Gentile, to anyone that has ears to hear, because we serve a faithful God that will save every person he sets out to save, never losing one of his sheep. And that should be an encouragement to us. In Romans chapter 11, and we will get into this as the weeks go, but I want to draw some attention to it because it is a key verse in the text. In Romans chapter 11, verse 22, it says this, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided 
you continue in his kindness. Other two, otherwise, you too will be cut off. See, there is a kindness to God. And we thank God for that. There is what is called both common grace, and that is his goodness to all mankind. And then there is also what we call covenantal grace, and that is a grace given to those that are in relationship with him. And it is in your worst interest for you to not give him glory for all the common graces, and it is in your worst interest for you to not give him glory for all of the covenant graces that he has given us inside of Christ. See, we need to understand that there are consequences for sin, which is why the gospel is so important. We are told in the book of Romans also in chapter 3, verse 23, this very, very important reality. And it says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But we are also told this encouraging reality in Romans 6, 23. Where it says, for the wages of sin is death. And I want to pause there. Because wages is something you earn. And something that you deserve. We all deserve death. Every Jew. Every Gentile. Every nation on the planet deserves death. Why? Because we've sinned against a holy God. But there's a kindness, not just a severity. And by the way, his severity is just. Never get that wrong. He's not up there being severe just to be severe. He's being severe because it's just for him to be severe because of how awful sin is. And that's why in Romans chapter 11, so many people were wondering, if Israel did all of that, what will God do with them? Answer, save every Jew he is going to save. That is an amazing reality for us to ponder here tonight. See, we find out about the kindness and grace of God and the severity and holiness of God in His Word. In Psalm 19.11, we are told that we are given God's Word so that we know that He rewards those who walk in accordance to it. And not just that He rewards those that walk in accordance to it, but He also warns people to not disobey what it has to say. Because there are consequences to actions. And in the same way, Paul is both giving hope to the Jewish people and a severe warning. And that is, there is hope for you to be saved by repentance. But he's also wanting the Jewish people to understand the graces you have received are beyond measure. And so if you do not respond kindly to the grace of God in the form of the gospel, the consequence of that action is not simply a temporary consequence. It is an eternal consequence. And as we go back to Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you would turn with me to the book of Joshua. In the book of Joshua, we will start in one verse in chapter 21, and then we will skip over to a few other ones. In Joshua 21 and verse 45, it says this. Not one word, hear that, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. 
And I want to encourage you in something. God has not changed. He has made a promise to you in his word. It will come to pass. But we have to understand that. Because the wages of sin is death. Eternal death. Physical death. And friend, it will come to pass. But there's also an option. There is a free gift of eternal life through the work of Christ and entrusting in that it will come to pass that you will have eternal life. Joshua later on in chapter 23 talks about both the kindness and severity of God starting in verse 14 again talking to Israel. He says this, Joshua speaking, and now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. That is, he's getting ready to die. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you, if you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given to you. And time after time after time, we see this happen for Israel. And friends, you need to keep in mind that you should not assume that God's grace towards us is an unlimited amount of grace. That is, that you're going to have opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to receive his gospel. He warns us, and he gives us hope. And in the same way, we see a consistency through the word of God of both hope and warning, hope and warning. And for those of us that are in Christ, do not think that you are immune to the discipline of God. That you can claim to be a Christian and just do whatever you want. And there's no consequences to you walking in your sin. Now, is your salvation based on your perfection or your performance? Absolutely not. But know that the God that saved you still hates the sin that is in your life and does not want you to commit that sin, but instead to live for his glory. And so we can never be passive about the promises of God or the discipline of God, about the kindness of God, or the severity of God, about the eternal life that is offered and the eternal torment that is waiting for those that do not submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. See, so often we want to focus on the kindness of God, and that is a good thing. It would be a disservice for us to not focus on the kindness of God. And on the other end of the spectrum, it would be a disservice for you to just focus on the severity of God and never consider his kindness. But we must have a great balance of these things in our lives. For to have a balance of these things, the Christian will live a holy life. And for Israel to do what it is that God had commanded them to do, it was going to require them always keeping in mind the kindness and the severity of God. And that has not changed for us today. See, people are saved. Both Old and New Testament, Jew and Gentile, ultimately because of the faithfulness, the goodness, and the grace of God. And people remain unsaved ultimately because of the rejection of God's goodness and revelation to them through the gospel, 
through nature, through God's gracious gifts and common grace, through our conscience, God's fulfillment of his promises and covenants, and the historical accuracy of the Bible, all shouting to every person on the planet, from God, I am here, and I am a kind and severe God. I am a loving and a holy God. And I offer you a way out of the wages of your sin. And it is through the free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. As Paul gives us this argument in Romans 11.1 about God rejecting his people and why he has not done that, I want us to keep in mind specifically what is he talking about here. And what he is talking about is found in Genesis chapter 12. And in Genesis chapter 12, we see a promise that was made to Abraham that God was going to bless the world through Abraham. And that was salvific. And we see in Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, that in heaven, people from every tribe and tongue and race and ethnicity and all people groups are saved and before the throne of God. Think about that. The fulfillment of the very thing that God promised to do in Genesis chapter 12, that he was going to save the world. That is, the people groups of the world through the Messiah. And in that, we should desire to be a part of that very thing, the evangelism that we have been talking about. But to understand the depth of this, I would encourage us to turn now to Acts chapter 3. In Acts chapter 3, we're going to read quite a few verses there. And we're going to start in verse 17. Again, a message that I talked to you a minute ago that led to 5,000 people being saved. In Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 17, again, speaking to the people of Israel, this is what Peter says. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. You remember in Romans chapter 9, Paul said these words, not everybody that was of Israel was actually of Israel. What did he mean by that? Is that just because you were born a Jew, just because you were a part of a certain Jewish tribe, did not mean you would be saved. You just weren't born into this thing. You needed to repent because you have a major issue. It's called a sin issue. He was looking at his brothers and saying, even though you participated. Now again, think about Paul. He was a persecutor of the church. A severe thing. Let's take it up another notch. He's looking at men and saying, you crucified Christ. But there's hope. There's hope for you. For the people who crucified Christ, there was hope for them. The people that were cheering, crucify Him, crucify Him, crucify Him. There was hope. And friend, that message is the same for you. There is hope. I don't care if you've heard the gospel 50 times. There is still hope for you to repent and cry out to him for mercy. Even though Israel had made a living out of killing prophets who came proclaiming the word of the Lord to that nation, their attitude most of the time was, rid ourselves of these prophets that preach the truth. 
Give us prophets that will lie to us. Those very people God saved, was willing to save those kind of folks. And by the way, you kind of folks and me kind of folks. God is willing to save. How does he do that? Through us repenting and turning back from our sins. In verse 21 he says this, Whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things, all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. And we'll get into that as we go through the next few weeks. Then he says this, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. This was Moses talking about Christ coming. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed, which that is fulfilled in Christ. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. The gospel call went out to all, just like it is going out here tonight. See, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the promise of Genesis 12, 2 and 3. And he is the means of Revelation 5, 9 and 10 coming to pass. But he wants to use people like you and I that are inside of Christ to bring these people to faith. The receiving of the work of Christ brings the spiritual blessing to both Jew and Gentile. That is, there is no advantage. You just don't get born into something. You may be born into a Christian family. Friend, that does not save you. Any more than being born into the people of Israel saved them. It requires repentance. It requires turning away from your sin. If you remember what we talked about last week in Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 12, it says this, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you called on Him tonight? See, Israel's problem was never informational or intellectual. The problem was an unwillingness to repent and submit to God. And for so many people in America, even people in this room, it's not an information problem. It's not that you don't know about Jesus. It's that you will not submit to Jesus. You refuse. You're going to take your chance. You're going to do your own thing. You're going to live your own way. And just like we see again in Romans chapter 10, verse 21, you are continuing holding the position of contrary and disobedient to God, despite all of the graces that He is extending to you. And Christian, in light of the great grace of salvation, we should desire to live the kind of life that is not just simply a come-and-see kind of life, but a go-and-tell kind of life. A kind of life where we go and we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't sit inside of our churches and say, if you want to hear the gospel, if you want to see the gospel, come in here. No, we go out because we are so in love with the Savior that has done this amazing work in our lives. As we think about the absolute magnificence of what we're 
thinking about here in God's grace of saving people, even Israelites who had rejected God and crucifying Christ and rejected his gospel and rejected all of these things. I encourage us to also remember that us Gentiles are no better. And in Ephesians chapter 2, we see this argument that Paul lays out, and I would encourage you to turn over there with me tonight. In Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11, it says this, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. What a sad state of affairs. There was nation after nation unaware of the God of Israel. Did that mean that God couldn't save because they were isolated from this? They didn't have the covenants. They didn't have the Old Testament. They didn't have the prophets. They didn't have all of those graces of God. Was God able to save someone without all of those graces, without all of those means, without all of those opportunities, without all of those resources? Was God able to save? Answer, absolutely. What do these resources do? One thing they do is bring greater condemnation for those that reject them. Israel had great condemnation on them because of the great graces that God has given. And in the same way, we here in America have been given so many graces. Are we good stewards of them? Or do we neglect them in our lives? He goes on to say this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's the means of being brought near to God. It wasn't a nationality. It wasn't having the luxury of having prophets around. It wasn't the luxury of having the word of God. It was by the blood of Christ that men and women are saved. That is how we are brought near. And whether you were a Jew in the day of Paul or whether you're an American Christian, the way that we are saved is by the blood of Jesus Christ. And it says this, For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And by the way, there's two walls of hostility here present. There's definitely a hostility between us and God, because we are God's enemies. We are under the wrath of God in and of ourselves. And God is angry towards sinners who sin continually all day long. But through the work of Christ, both to the Jew and the Gentile, that wall of hostility is torn down by the work of Jesus Christ. And we can have what is called reconciliation or peace with God. And in the same way, he has torn down the wall of hostility between the Jew and the Gentile. By the way, the Jew that did not want to go and do what God had called them to do in proclaiming to the Gentile that God was going to bring a Messiah that was going to save them from their sins. We see again, even with Jonah, when he was called, a reluctance to do it because of the hostility in his heart. And what's the encouragement there? Jonah's hostility did not keep God from saving. 
Jonah's hostility did not keep God from saving. Friend, no one goes to heaven or hell because of you. But oh, the joy of being part of someone spending eternity with God by being used by God with the proper attitude. And that's what Paul was all about. We spent weeks talking about his attitude that we see in Romans 9 and Romans chapter 10. This man was heartbroken over his people not knowing Christ. He was heartbroken over the Jewish people, the kind of thing that kept him up at night knowing that they had been given so much grace and yet they were rejecting it. And it is what made Paul go to every synagogue in every city he visited and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ because his heart was broken for the Jewish people. But do not be fooled. His heart was also broken for the Gentiles because he understood what God had called him to do. And that was, as a Jewish man, be a light. And in the same way, we as Gentiles have been called to be lights to those that are around us of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Both the hostility between us and God and one another has been torn down and there should not be any ill in your heart that would ever keep you from sharing the gospel with someone because of a hostility that is there that Jesus died to rescue you from. See, it is through the faithfulness of Christ that God's covenant of Genesis 12, 1 and 3, was accomplished, making one people, both Jew and Gentile, do the work of Christ. And we call it the church. This was not an organizational calling. This was not a calling of a national group, but this was a spiritual calling that took care of every single issue on the planet that divides men and women for a multitude of reasons. And that is the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. He goes on to say this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, which is what we have right here. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. When people look at your life, do they see a holy temple unto the Lord? Do they see a transformation? Do they see what it is that Christ died to do in our lives. There's really two challenges here tonight. Number one is this, is there hostility in your heart? Is there a hostility in your heart towards someone or a group of someone that would make you, like Israel, not want to share God's awesome grace of the gospel with them? If so, I would encourage you to repent of that here tonight. Is there anyone here tonight that doesn't know Christ? That is, that if they were to die today, they know for sure that they would spend eternity with Him. Friend, it is only through the work of Jesus Christ that that can be done. Is there a Christian in our midst that just simply does not have a zeal to share the gospel with those that are around them? Maybe even if we were to be honest that we're a respecter of persons. There are certain people that we want so badly to be saved but then others that we're almost passive towards. 
See, we need to ask the Lord to transform our hearts. That we would learn from the example of Israel and not have prejudice and bias and evil in our hearts and instead to repent, to cry out to Him, to ask Him for the grace, to love as He loves and to want to be a means in which God uses to rescue those that He has died to save. So tonight I encourage you to do some business with God, just you and the Lord, and then here in a moment I will pray us into our communion time, but I want to make sure that we have time to respond to what is shared here tonight. So whether it is submitting to Christ for the first time, to believing in the gospel, or whether it is as a Christian saying, God, remove any hostility in my heart that keeps me from being someone that shares your word, I would encourage you to do that tonight, and then I will pray.